Is it Coggins or Coggins? How do you pronounce it? Coggins. Coggins. Dr. Sally Coggins. I just said it then. Coggins. I said it. <laughs> Dr. Sally Coggins. I need to tell him a few times. Sorry. <laughs> Hi, I'm Hubert. This is Gerardo. And you are listening to the Vet Bob Clinical Podcast. Hello, Vet Velters. We wanted to share this two-part series on feline infectious peritonitis from our clinical podcast series with you so that you can share what you learn here with the rest of the world. The world of FIP treatment is just evolving so quickly and in such exciting ways that it's just too good not to share. In the space of a few years, we've gone from FIP being a death sentence to it being a totally treatable disease with the drugs needed to treat it being legally and easily available from very reliable sources in at least two countries. You can even choose between injectable and oral therapy these days. Our co-host for these episodes is Dr. Dave Collins, a medicine specialist from Sydney and the genius behind Vets on Tour, which is a series of veterinary conferences in some spectacular places in the world. If you fancy a bit of snow and upraised skiing with your CPD, you should definitely check out vetsontour.com.au. You'll usually hear Dave as a sharer of wisdom in our clinical podcasts. But today, he's asking questions with me. And the person we're asking questions of is Dr. Sally Coggins, a feline veterinarian and researcher in FIP treatments at the University of Sydney. Sally shares what they've been learning about how to treat FIP, including all the nitty-gritty around different treatment options, doses, and how to adjust your treatment if things don't go according to plan. Basically, this is, for now at least, one of the most up-to-date resources around the treatment and cure of FIP. In part one, we dig deep into confirming your diagnosis, which has also come a long way, and into remdesivir, the drug that changed it all. And if you like this, remember to go to vvn.supercast.com for a free two-week trial of our Smallies Medicine, ECC, and Surgery podcasts. We know how hard it is to commit the time to sit down for ongoing CPD, and we know how quickly you start feeling that you're falling behind on current treatments or start feeling rusty about all the stuff you learned back at university. Which is why we think you will love these. Three episodes per week that will take you from, mm, I don't know, to being the sharpest tool in the shed, all in the space of your drive to work. Once you've joined up, you'll be able to listen to all of our podcasts on exactly the same place that you normally listen to podcasts, including the Apple Podcast Player and Spotify. We'll also send you beautifully made show notes with all of the good bits so you can refer back to it later. Okay, Dr. Sally and how to be an FIP hero. <laughs> Welcome to the Red Vault and thank you for joining us talking about FIP tonight. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be on. And we've got Dave and Gerardo joining us as well. Hey, great to be here. Hey team. Round three FIP for you, Dave, on the Red Vault. Oh, I can't get enough of FIP. I'm <laughs> stoked to have a real expert who's um, PhDing in the topic. So we're going to we're going to pull off the the previous podcasts that that we've done on FIP, and this is the definitive one. Is that right? So far, it's changing on a weekly basis, man. So well, that's exactly why we want to revisit it because exactly that it, it is changing. We did this oh, not even a. A year ago, Dave, six months, just maybe over six months yeah. ago, we did our first one and we covered a fair amount of diagnosis of it. Let's say the old knowledge around FIP. And then we touched on the new stuff. But at that stage, Dave hadn't treated any. And it, when we first recorded, Remdesivir wasn't legal in Australia. You couldn't get it. It was all black market stuff. 
and mm. there's been a lot of progress. And and so you've yeah. been working with these, you've been treating these cases with the new stuff, yes? Yeah, yeah. So I've been coordinating. So we've got two prospective clinical trials looking into antivirals in FIP and remdesivir is one of those trials. So we've built the clinical trial around the initial treatment protocol that Richard Malik had circulated. And that's been evolving, I guess, the more vets in the field have been using it and feeding things back to us. But yeah, essentially, we're recruiting cats from all around Australia, and they're remaining generally with their primary clinician, and we're essentially providing them with protocols and case advice. So I'm not necessarily hands on with all of these cases. I've had the opportunity to go over and meet a few at the clinic that are being treated. But yeah, a lot of the cases that are recruited are actually all over Australia. Okay. Oh, wow. How many, how many cases are we looking at here in this trial? So I've got ethics approval for 20 and we're up to 12 with those. And so far they're, except for one, they're all doing really well. Unfortunately, one poor um, little cat developed a urethral obstruction the day after starting remdesivir, most likely due to idiopathic cystitis, stress-induced things unrelated to its FIP. Are there any other ongoing studies globally that you know of? Yeah, so I guess the hard thing has been getting access to the drug and that's where Australia has been in quite a unique position that Bova were able to start making the remdesivir because essentially that offered us the, the only legal channel outside of Gilead deciding to actually register the drug, which they don't want to do. So the black market stuff that had been floating around was illegal because it's an unregistered drug that you're importing for the use in an animal, whereas mm. compounded drugs are different because compounded drugs aren't seen as veterinary chemicals under the AgVet code. So it means they're exempt from the registration with the AVPMA. So it's not that, you know, this is a legal registered drug. It's because it's a compounded product. It's a, a legal loophole. As vets, we're perfectly within our rights to get a registered pharmacist to compound an unlicensed drug for use in animals as long as there's no registered drug equivalent and none of the nucleoside hmm. analogs are registered for animals. Okay. So did you base some of your treatment trial on the use of the previous product, the GS? The GS441524. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So obviously Peterson had published some pretty comprehensive work that I think you referenced in the last podcast, Dave, and that really was sort of the, the foundation work in terms of nucleoside analogs in cats and are they well tolerated and, hey, it actually seems to work, which is awesome. Remdesivir is essentially the pro-drug of GS441524. So they're pretty much exactly, well, they are exactly the same compound. You've just got an extra phosphate group that's tacked on to remdesivir. And the point of that is it's meant to help with penetration into the cell. Um, so getting the antiviral into the cell itself. I don't know that we're appreciating a significant difference in cats. So a lot of clinicians that have fessed up to using DS441524 or having exposure with that. Like it, it started off as a reasonable equivocal dose rate, like jump from one to the next. But I think we're finding the more we're using remdesivir that higher dose rates are potentially needed than we initially thought. So we were originally looking at sort of five to six mg per kg as being sort of the maintenance dose. We're still advocating six mg per kg generally for your 
garden variety wet form FIPs, but the dryers are starting to need probably a little bit more, probably more like eight meg per kick. And the sort of neuro and the ophthalmic cases are definitely needing more like sort of 10 to 15 meg per kick to get them and keep them into remission. So it makes them a hell of a lot more expensive. Yeah, yeah, big time. That's very expensive still, unfortunately, for, you know, a three to five kilo cut on the baseline sort of protocol, you're going to be looking at probably four to six and a half grand for 12 weeks of treatment. Is that drug, um, drug, drug only? That's the drug at, only. At cost yeah, price. That's just you order it from Bova, that's the drug cost. And most vets aren't putting a markup on their remdesivir. A lot of vets, I guess, are sort of opting to, you know, obviously be charging for time with rechecks. But, yeah, it, it adds up and it's going to be cost that is the reason why cats don't get treated, mm. which is why I'm still very keen to explore the possibility of mefloquine as an alternative antiviral. So the second clinical trial that we've got going is looking into mefloquine, which is the anti-malarial drug that's shown to have some efficacy against coronavirus. It's a it's a similar trial. It's 12 weeks of treatment and then monitoring out to 12 months. And we're hoping between those two trials, we can pull a bit more information in terms of what are the key indicators that cats are actually going into remission. The main thing that we're seeing in terms of the cats that are on the remdesivir trial and monitoring response to therapy Certainly, they improve really quickly when you start them on this drug, like usually the pyrexias and inappetence and things are resolving within the first few days of treatment. The effusions, if they're sort of wet form FIP and only resolving within sort of one to three weeks, we see them dry up. And then often the albumin comes up with that because they've reabsorbed the protein from the ascites or um, the pleural effusion. The globulins seem to take a little bit longer to come down, like some are pushing out to sort of six to eight weeks to see the globulins normalise. We're sort of feeling our way, I guess, with this as well, but we want their albumin, globulin and haematology to be normal for at least two weeks before we discontinue the drug. So Mm. most of them have hit that by 12 weeks, but there's um, one already that we've sort of pushed out for another two weeks at this stage. So yeah, it's looking very effective. Certainly, as I said, the 11 out of the 12 that I've got in the trial is still alive at this stage. And the feedback we're getting from vets on the ground that are using it is we can probably aim for at least an 80% kind of remission and cure rate at this point in time. Just going back to what you said at the beginning, Sally, about well, the cats that come into your study have to be confirmed FIP. Now we all know mm-hmm. that's a mouthful. It's not. It's not two words that you easily put in the same sentence. FIP confirmed. Mm-hmm. What does confirm mean for you guys? Yeah, so I guess the definitive diagnosis for us hinges on ideally, like the gold standard, it's always going to be immunocytochemistry on effusions or immunohistochemistry on tissue. Mm-hmm. So essentially, they're both quite similar techniques in that it's a process of applying a stain that's going to stick to coronavirus if it's inside a macrophage and then you've visually got to look at it under a microscope to see it. So things in the effusions, the immunocytochemistry is fluorescing dye. So we look at it under a UV microscope and you're literally looking for cells that are glowing in the dark and then are they monocytes? Um, So that's sort of how we get a definitive off Effusive FIP, for dry FIP, the immunohistochemistry is from biopsy tissue and obviously that 
the biggest barrier there is that that's an invasive diagnostic step and you've generally got pretty critically ill tiny cats that aren't necessarily in a position to undergo those procedures or don't have owners that want to put them through those procedures. We've, we have had success though aspirating. So often it'll be, you know, there's a big mesenteric node or an abdominal mass or something that you want to biopsy, but you could probably stick a needle in pretty effectively. And I've had success definitely with repeat FNAs I'll draw up actually so you can do an actual direct smear like you would for a normal aspirate and we can stain those it it, cell preservation is a bit of an issue there and and I would always do direct smears but the other technique that we're finding somewhat successful is if you draw up like literally 0.1 mil of saline in about five little one mil syringes and you're going to use those to flush the needle into an EDTA tube so you do your FNA you detach your syringe if you've sucked or if you're just sort of woodpeckering your needle but then flush one of the little eloquots through the needle to deliver those cells into the EDTA and put them all in the same one so you end up essentially with half a mil to a mil of fluid with about five sticks worth of cells in there and that's often enough to do the immunofluorescence on as well. So it sounds quite similar to the protocol for flow cytometry um, for diagnosing lymphoma and we use a bit of serum as well as saline and you can get really good yields of cells for staining well yeah especially because most of the time it is lymph nodes that it's hitting and they do tend to exfoliate reasonably well so that's definitely an option when you for the drive forms to confirm the diagnosis when you do that technique where you put it in the edta tube with the saline mm. are you sending that tube or are you smearing it out yeah just, no send the tube, the tube. Okay. yeah because we need to cytospin it so we take an eloquot out of that soup essentially and then we cytospin it so that they're in a nice little monolayer disc so yeah don't centrifuge them we'll do all of that but yeah if you can send a few just straight aspirates that you squirt on the side the normal way you do just be real gentle when you sort of smear them out or don't even smear them if you're not getting that much out like just do a few like squirts on the slide mm-hmm. and then yes if you can do the eloquats in saline we're finding we're getting reasonable cell preservation that way the other thing that we're including as a definitive is a positive PCR on effusions. So IDEX offer the PCR for coronavirus, and that's very different to the fecal PCR, which can't tell you here or there whether or not the cat's got FIP. Mm-hmm. Essentially, any of these definitive tests, really what we're doing is catching coronavirus in a place it can't get to unless it's mutated to a point where it can replicate in macrophages and disseminate around the body because it's the same coronavirus that was in the gut and is in the gut of plenty of cats. But the thing that differentiates feline coronavirus from FIP virus is that ability to replicate within macrophages in an enhanced way and disseminate around the body. So if we're finding it in a pleural effusion, who doesn't get into the pleural effusion unless it's migrated through the body, basically. So, so these immunohistochemistry and immuno, um, sorry, cytochemistry do all labs do this or do you have to send it some special magical place well the special magical place is sydney university um so <laughs> yeah. the veterinary pathology and diagnostic lab at sydney uni is the only lab in australia that runs this test but you can request it through idex vetnostics any of those labs yeah. will offer it 
The thing I'd say, and I'm not getting paid a cent by the lab, it's a commercial entity at, at the uni, but time is of the essence with these diagnostic tests because ultimately we need to see the virus in the cells. So the cells need to be in good nick when they get there. And now that I've got vets reaching out to me as they've sent samples, there's been a few times where the double handling from one lab to the next means that these these samples aren't getting us to us until sort of seven to ten days after they've been collected, which oh, wow. cell degradations occurred at that point. So we're, we're increasing the amount of false negatives potentially there. And so I strongly recommend anyone can submit direct to the lab at Sydney University. You can hook up an account super quick with them online. So submit direct to the Veterinary Pathology Diagnostic Lab at Sydney Uni for effusions for immunocytochemistry and biopsies for immunohistochemistry or send your effusion to IDEX for the PCR. The sensitivity of the immunocytohistochemistry is around 70%, isn't it? So you're still going to miss quite a few. What's your minimum acceptable standards for diagnosis? I guess we need one of them to be positive and we're running both. So if we've got a cat that is sending fluid to us for immunocytochemistry and it's negative, we're generally sending it on for the PCR. So we're pairing those tests, which is creating some quite interesting data alone because it's rare that both are positive. It's usually one or the other or neither. <laughs> well, yeah. And you're, you're unique in an FIP study where most of the old studies you could easily get post-mortem samples. Mm. Not this time. <laughs> exactly, I know. None of the pluggers have really died. <laughs> I just want to make our diagnostics highly practical because I, I got mm. most of it but I just want to make sure we've got it in boxes so so in terms of let's say I've got a kitten come in it's a wet kitten fluid yeah. belly your, your textbook case so to diagnose yeah. that I want to tap some of that abdo fluid yes yep. and send it for either the immunohistochemistry or or, or the PCR yep. have you got a preference which one would you go for if I had to choose um, one Cytochemistry is still the gold standard okay. um, because you're visualizing the virus inside the macrophage. But the PCR, I think whoever's whoever you can get fluid to the quickest, you know, I'd, we're doing both, as I said, because I think, unfortunately, there's a, a high amount of false negatives with both tests. So ideally both, but otherwise it's probably more a turnaround time issue. I mean, if it's pyrexic, if it's hyperglobulinemic, if it's hyperbilirubinemic, it's got a belly full of fluid and it's strawy and high protein, you can probably just order the remdesivir. But I think, you know, if we have a diagnostic test available and it's not cost prohibitive, it's ideal to be confirming the diagnosis mm. before we commit the owner to six grand worth of treatment yep. a bit like chemotherapy yeah. as well so i and i think it's probably you know for wet form fit it's very easy to get those samples for dry form as we discussed it's hard with that barrier of things getting more invasive and do we want to put them through biopsies and maybe FNAs aren't going to be diagnostic and again it's dragging out the time until you can start these cats on treatment but I think with dry I'm still we've had a few that we've heard of who haven't responded to remdesivir or who partially responded maybe and then 
turns out they die of lymphoma. Like we, we're not sure whether that's that they had lymphoma the whole time or if there was FIP and then they've been unfortunate or whether there's a drug reaction that's promoting lymphoma, mm. like who knows. That's where I think the more clear we are and what we're dealing with is always going to be best case scenario. But there's plenty of vets now that are opting for remdesivir as a treatment trial, essentially as a rule out. If they get better, it's FIP. If they don't, we'll keep looking for something else. Is, is the cost of testing like cost inhibitive or something? Like the um, the cost to do the immunofluorescence through Uni Sydney, I think, is around 180 bucks. Okay, but IDEX and Vetnostics double it, so it's more like 360 to 400 kind of thing. You want to submit it through an external lab pcrs i'm yeah i'm actually not sure but i think you're still looking in that like 200 to 250 kind of realm so yeah, it's not like crazy two or, three, two or three hundred bucks yeah. yeah so but i guess it does all add up and a vial of remdesivir that'll get you the first you know three to five days worth of treatment is 250 bucks so yeah well, dr malik was advocating treatment trials and particularly if you're strongly suspicious of a dry fip you know neuro or Uveitis, the the treatment trial is going to be way cheaper than an MRI, for example. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, I don't, I don't really like stabbing eyeballs either to try and get you know aqueous and stuff. So um, I think for for neuro and ophthalmic, uh, you know, opting for starting on treatment and seeing how they respond is pretty reasonable in so, this day so, and age. So your case that you do want to try there, you have an older, normally an older cat, yes that's neuros that is some sort of neuroscience and high globulins or what else is going to give you enough of a push to go yeah let's buy some yeah i mean i think pyrexia is a big one yeah. if there's been any sort of waxing and waning pyrexia definitely if globulins are up or that ratio the alglob ratio is getting down under you know 0.5 definitely under 0.4 it's got my attention mm-hmm. i still try and rule out the other things like you want to do your crypto toxo you sort of standard infectious kind of rule outs for the things we can test for a bit more readily in those cases if it's not cost prohibitive but you know again a vial of remdesivir is going to cost a about the same as most of that diagnostic suite individually so it, you can add it as one of the things that you'll try and and theoretically by the end of the vial you'd have some kind of if you say the pyrexia comes down neurologically they're like so you, yeah i mean i would generally be saying particularly because neuro and ophthalmic i think is a bit more stubborn i would generally be trying to give them two weeks on treatment to know whether or not we're winning so most of the time we're advocating i just I guess just to clarify the the treatment regime we recommend for the trial, they're starting on 10 mg per kg as more of an induction thing. We're doing that for the first four doses once a day, slow IV. So they're getting that on day zero, one, two, and three. Usually by the time they've had those four doses, most of the cats are showing some improvement. But for some of them, it's taken sort of out to a week to show that kind of initial improvement. So we then move them on to a subcut dose of six mg per kg and continue that out to 12 weeks. But for those neuro-ophthalmic ones, we keep them on 10 mg per kg for the duration of the protocol. And they're the ones that if after a week we're really not seeing any improvement, I'd be bumping them up to 15 mg per kg and seeing whether another week at a higher dose gives you some improvement. So again, if it's going to take us two weeks to maybe figure out whether they're responding to remdesivir, I think it definitely pays to still be ruling other things out like crypto and toxo mm. and other sort of common causes of neuro stuff in cats. Sally, you said something before, wrote down here, three to five kilos, 
four to six and a half K for 12 weeks. That's mm-hmm. a six mig big kick dose. Like, yeah. So if, yeah. So if, so was, if you had a five kilo cat that needed 15 mig per kick for 12 weeks, you're talking like 12 to 15 grand just for the drug. Yeah. But so I guess one of the dry fit cats in our trial, he had been on the 10 induction and then six maintenance and at week eight developed aqueous flare and uveitis symptoms. So he went up to 10 mg per kg, no improvement after a week. So he's on 15 mg per kg and he's responding and his globulins are starting to come down again. But he's one of the ones that will be pushing out past 12 weeks for sure. And would you jump in with mefloquine with that kind of cat? Yeah, look. You have to be determined. That's the next step. Just a few extra details on Remdesivir and GS4415T4. Geez, we really need to work on a new name for it, don't we? That I've managed to dig up for you. And this, my friends, is brand spanking new reliable information. So we've heard that Remdesivir is available here in Australia, 100% legally, as a compounded drug through Bova. And the great news is that it is also now available in the UK, also through Bova. As an aside, how this is allowed to happen is an interesting story, which basically involves the pharmaceutical company Gilead, who owns the patent or the license or whatever you call it, allowing other companies to make the active ingredient for human use because of the pandemic. But also maybe turning a little bit of a willful blind eye to the veterinary use of it because, well, they don't really want to condemn the world's FIP cats to death and it's not really affecting their profits by us using it. For our colleagues elsewhere, you are still going to have to send your clients into the murky grounds of illegally acquired meds. But as we know, there are the FIP support groups on Facebook and the internet that are helping people negotiate this successfully. We do know that Remdesivir is registered for human use in several countries for treating COVID. So I did look into whether one could get legal access to the human form and using that in our patients. The answer is yes theoretically, but there are a few stumbling blocks. Number one, in many countries, its use is strictly reserved for human use and in those countries, using it in a cat would likely still be illegal. Number two, the human formulation is not really suited to cats. The drug available in the UK, for example, is in a 5 milligram per mil liquid, which would mean that your average cat would need about a 10 mil subcutaneous injection every day for 84 days. It's also in a single-use vial, so you'd have to use a new vial every day, and a vial in the UK sells for around 340 pounds. So for a full 84-day course, you'd be looking at about 32,000 pounds or 60,000 Australian dollars. There we go. In the next episode, Sally will tell us more about other medications like mefloquin and how we use that, and a few more exciting details about remdesivir and GS44 blah 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 on the horizon for us. See you next time.